As we come to the preaching of God's Word, I invite you to turn to Psalm 72. Psalm 72. In the Psalter, we have a variety of different kinds of psalms. One of the kinds of psalms that we have are kingdom psalms. Kings, psalms which very explicitly talk about God's kingdom. About God's kingdom. And there's much, if not complete, overlap between those psalms and psalms that we would maybe specifically call messianic psalms because of how explicitly they point to Jesus Christ. Now, in a very real way, we can say that all the psalms are messianic because all of Scripture points to Jesus Christ and teaches us of him. And one can even say in the Psalms in, in, particular, in particular ways. But there are some Psalms which very explicitly and very clearly uh, point to the Messiah, to the anticipated anointing one, anointed one, the Savior of God's people. And this is one of those, one of those Psalms. And this vision for Christ's kingdom that is typified through this consideration of by, by Solomon of his kingdom is also a vision that was embraced by some of the early leadership of our country as many of you know because verse 8 was then portion of it from sea to sea was incorporated into our motto and the first verse give the king your judgments O God and your righteousness to the king's son as well as verse 8 are engraved on the peace tower of our parliament buildings But let us give heed now to the word of God as I read Psalm 72 together before we consider certain aspects of it this evening. A Psalm of Solomon. Give the king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. He will judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. The mountains will bring peace to the people and the little hills by righteousness. He will bring justice to the poor of the people. He will save the children of the needy and will break in pieces the oppressor. They shall fear you as long as the sun and moon endure. Throughout all generations, he shall come down like rain upon the grass before mowing, like showers that water the earth. In his days, the righteous shall flourish an abundance of peace until the moon is no more. He shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Those who dwell in the wilderness will bow before him and his enemies will lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and of the isles will bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba will offer gifts. Yes, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. For he will deliver the needy when he cries. The poor also, and him who has no helper. He will spare the poor and needy, and will save the souls of the needy. He will redeem their life from oppression and violence, and precious shall be their blood in his sight. And he shall live, and the gold of Sheba will be given to him. Prayer also will be made for him continually, and daily he shall be praised. There will be an abundance of grain in the earth. On the top of the mountains, its fruit will wave like Lebanon. And those of the city shall flourish like grass of the earth. His name shall endure forever. 
His name shall continue as long as the sun, and men shall be blessed in him. All nations shall call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who only does wondrous things, and blessed be his glorious name forever. And let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. I perhaps should have asked this question before I read, but I wonder how many characteristics of the kingdom you identified as we read through this psalm. How many characteristics of the kingdom of Solomon's kingdom? And again, in in type, in anticipation of Christ's kingdom. I want to, in mentioning that and talking about that, I want to mention something technical about the nature of this psalm that is helpful in some of the interpretation of it. As a psalm, it's poetry. And as you may know or may not, but parallelism is a very important characteristic of Hebrew poetry. You saw much of it in here with one line saying one thing and then the next line saying something uh, almost identical in similar language but uh, but slightly different. Sometimes the parallels uh, develop what was said. The second line will develop what was said in the first line sometime. Sometimes it will be largely synonymous. But there's a unique, there's a rather unique aspect of Hebrew poetry that's not seen in all in all poetry but is in certain passages and it is in this psalm here and it's it's uh, called technically speaking it's called a chiasm or a chiastic structure so some of you may have heard that term some of you may not but the idea of that structure is that you have you have a a portion of text where the beginning and the end relate to each other in a, in a form of parallelism. So you have a beginning and an end that relate to each other, and then there's a second and a second last section which relate to each other. And then depending on how long it is, there might be a third and a third last section, a fourth. And so that helps to tie together the, the thematic, the theme of the, of the uh, piece of literature and to understand what the psalmist is saying. But then there's also another important characteristic of the chiastic structure is that it's all designed to focus our attention in on the center, on the central portion of the psalm. And so we have in this psalm, verses 1 to 4 essentially are an introduction, and verses 18 to 20 are a conclusion. The introduction talking about the exalted king because of three characteristics of his kingdom. And we see there the characteristics of justice or righteousness, of peace, and of deliverance from oppression. And then we see the conclusion wrapping up with the characteristics of his kingdom for which he's exalted, the characteristics of the eternality or the eternal kingdom and the universal kingdom. And then in verse 5, the second section of the psalm, you see a reference to the eternal kingdom and then in verse 17 you also see a reference to the eternal kingdom and then in verses 6 to 7 you then come back to reference to the kingdom of righteousness and peace those characteristics and then in, you also have there much of this 
symbolism, this natural agricultural symbolism that's used to flesh out and to give us a vision and a picture of what this really should look like, to captivate our imaginations with what righteousness and peace in the kingdom of Solomon and the kingdom of God look like. And then in verse 16, the third last section, you have this symbolism again, uh, from the agricultural and natural world. And so that ties back into being a reference to what the righteousness and uh, peace and deliverance from oppression should look like in Christ's kingdom. And then in the fourth and the fourth last sections, you have references in verses 8 to 11 to God's universal reign. And then you have in verse 15, the king is exalted for his universal and his eternal reign. So that's what brings the universality and the eternality of the kingdom together as a unit that could be discussed together. And then the very center of the the very center of this psalm is verses 12 to 14, where the psalmist then revisits the theme of the king's deliverance from oppression. So one of those third characteristics is referenced in the introduction verses 1 to 4. And the focus of our consideration this evening is going to be those three characteristics that are seen together in those different, in those different verses. Uh, the characteristics of Solomon's kingdom and of Christ's kingdom of justice and righteousness, of peace and of deliverance from oppression. Before we dig into those characteristics as points of of context and introduction, we want to note several other things. First of all, note that there is only one, one imperative in the entire psalm, one command, one command in the entire psalm, and it's that very first verse. Give, give the king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. Now, it's probably better to consider that as a plea rather than a command because a creature does not command things of their creator. And this is a plea by Solomon to God that he would give the king his judgments and to give righteousness to the king's son. Whether in terms of parallelism, the king and the king's son are both intended to see by Solomon to to be a reference to himself or whether the king is, is looking back at David as the first king that God gave his covenant promise of the Davidic kingdom to and then Solomon as his son who then inherits that kingdom from David Uh, there is that plea that God would give the king justice in judgment and righteousness and so everything else in this psalm hinges on, on, on that on God answering that prayer on God positively answering Solomon and granting God's people a king who is righteous and a king who is just in his judgment. All the may he's or he wills, depending on which translation of the Bible you have, are all hinged on God answering this plea of Solomon's. Secondly, I wanted to ask you if... You, most of you are familiar with the, with the account of Solomon. Most of you know the account of Solomon. When you think of Solomon, what is a characteristic that most comes to mind when you think of Solomon? When you think of his reign, his rule, his, the account of his life, what's the characteristic that most comes to mind? And is it a, is it a characteristic that you see here in this psalm? 
Well, for some of you, that might be the same characteristic that came to mind for me, and that's a characteristic of wisdom. Is Solomon not known as the one who God told him he could ask for anything uh, that he wanted as he began his reign? And instead of asking for wealth, instead of asking for uh, the lives of his enemies, instead of asking for anything else, he asked for wisdom. And that's one, probably one of the things that he is noted for almost more than anything else, except perhaps building the temple for the worship of God. And yet we don't see anything about wisdom in here. Or do we? Or do we? Do you remember what, do you remember what Solomon asked for wisdom for? If you go back to 1 Kings, we see that God gave psalm of wisdom for all kinds of things and in chapter 4 is more evidence how, how God blesses super abundantly and how God is so generous with his grace and his gifts but we see in 1st Kings chapter 4 verse 29 and God gave Solomon wisdom and exceedingly great understanding and largeness of heart like the sand of the seashore thus Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the men of the east and of all the wisdom of Egypt for he was wiser than all men and it, go, and, and it continues like that. But that's not what Solomon asked for wisdom for. That's not what Solomon asked for wisdom for. Solomon asked for wisdom for something very specific. Very specific. And we see that in the previous chapter of 1 Kings. Chapter 3, verse 9. Therefore give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people that I may discern between good and evil for who is able to judge this great people of yours. You see, it would be perfectly proper to translate give the king your judgments, O God, as give the king wisdom for judgment. Give the king wisdom for judgment. Wisdom is very much in view in this, in this psalm. The wisdom that Solomon asked God for is very much in view here because it was wisdom to be just in judgment, to judge God's people justly, rightly. And we also see here, as a final point in this introductory point, that the Solomon sought both public and personal righteousness. Is that not a constant debate and discussion among Christians in our day? Does, 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 a, does a civil magistrate have to be personally righteous in order to be a good governor? Does a civil magistrate have to be a Christian in order to be a reliable and trustworthy governor? We see that Solomon certainly thought that he did. And Solomon sought to have both personal righteousness and to be, to be just in his public work and public duties. They both go together. And so we see that God blessed him with wisdom for his public duties. And we also see that in 1 Kings 3.3, the Bible's declaration on Solomon, at least at the beginning of his reign, was that Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father David, except that he sacrificed and burned incense at the high places. So he wasn't perfect, and there were the exceptions, but the declaration in Scripture is that Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father David. So we see in Solomon the reconciliation of personal righteousness and public righteousness. Again, as I note at the beginning of his reign, because we know that that did not continue. And these are all 
things that we see about the Lord Jesus Christ and his reign as well. He was both righteous in his person and righteous in his reign. He was perfectly wise as the God-man. He had omniscience and perfect wisdom and always judges with perfect wisdom. And then, just prior to considering these specific characteristics of the kingdom, I want to note that imagery that we see in verses 6 to 7 and 16 of this psalm. Because that's one of the benefits and blessings of poetic literature, is that it can use these metaphors and these pictures and these images in order to, to dramatize the truths of Scripture, in order to capture our imagination so that it's not simply rational content for us, but our imagination can be captured by the vivid imagery that God provides in this poetic literature in order to... Uh, in order to clarify the significance of what he's saying. And there is beautiful imagery here which indicates how full and bountiful God want, intended, or that Solomon intended and wanted God to bless his kingdom with, and that he anticipated God would bless his kingdom with. And yet it's also imagery that indicates a fullness and a blessing of Justice, peace, and deliverance from oppression that Solomon himself could not ultimately realize. And so even in this imagery, we're pointed to a perfect, to a perfect fulfillment that had to come from somewhere else beyond Solomon that comes through the rule and the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. We read in verses 6 to 7, He shall come down like rain upon the grass before mowing, like showers that water the earth. In his days the righteous shall flourish in abundance of peace until the moon is no more. And then in verse 16, there will be an abundance of grain in the earth on the top of the mountains. Its fruit shall wave like Lebanon, and those of the city shall flourish like grass of the earth. And the idea of flourishing brings to mind the idea of peace. Shalom, the Hebrew word for peace, is not simply rest, but it includes wholeness, flourishing, prosperity, those kinds of things as well. And so we see in that imagery not just a desire that God would bless Israel with just a little bit more peace than the pagans have, just a little bit more justice than we get from our godless leaders, just a little bit more deliverance from oppression from those who don't know Christ, but he is seeking God for a kingdom that's full, that's bountiful in justice, bountiful in peace, bountiful in deliverance from oppression. And he's pleading to God for that expectantly. You can see that whole sense of expectancy in this psalm. He is believing that God is going to indeed answer that plea bountifully. And we know that the Lord Jesus Christ brings righteousness, peace, and deliverance from oppression in all its fullness, in all its fullness and all its perfection. And so just briefly, a couple of points on the imagery. Note that it begins with, he shall come down. As distinct from the gods, the pagan gods of different people around us, our God has made himself known personally to us by coming down. This was before the time of Christ. This is looking forward to what God would do in redemption. But we look back and we see that Christ is the one who did come down. 
God isn't, he's not asking God to just throw down blessings from heaven. He's not expecting God to bring blessings from heaven in a sleigh with a bunch of reindeer. But he is expecting God to come down. And we know that God came down and met with man in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ to provide redemption for his people. And he continues to minister personally through his Holy Spirit, making Christ's person and work alive to every believer. And walking with us day by day. Now we see, he shall come down like rain upon the grass before mowing. What does the grass before mowing mean? That's an unusual phraseology for us. What does that mean? That word's only found four times in the Old Testament. Two times related to grass and mowing, but two times related to the fleece of a sheep. Now how on earth do you put those two ideas together with one, with one word? Well, needless to say, it's left a lot of, for interpretation from different people. But one thing that you notice about grass that needs mowing and a fleece that needs to be cut is that the grass is growing and the fleece is growing. So it's a picture of growth. It's a picture of prosperity. It's a picture of bounty. And that's what we see. It's, it's one, of, one of the images uh, of uh, Solomon calling down God to pour out these blessings of justice, peace, and deliverance from oppression in fullness and great blessing as distinct from the wickedness of the nations around them. And then like showers that water the earth. I don't know about you, but as I was growing up, my parents used the word showers for whether a light shower or a heavy shower. No, nothing, in, nothing specific, but that, that Hebrew term for showers is the idea of a violent shower, a heavy downpour. Not, not a destructive downpour, but the kind of rainstorm that is welcomed in, a, in an environment that's arid, that's dry, that's parched, that needs rain, that needs rain, that needs water in order to... In, enliven and enrich the ground and to, to bring forth a crop and to bring forth flourishing. And so that's part of this picture that we are given by Solomon's plea to God for a kingdom for his people of true and full justice, peace, and deliverance from oppression. And so then we, we look at those characteristics and we consider, was Solomon's kingdom a kingdom of justice? Did Solomon's kingdom really meet this expectation for comprehensive and significant justice? Did it really stand out from the world around them as a kingdom of justice? And we see that the answer to that is yes. You'll remember one of the other things that Solomon is most known for is for the way he adjudicated that case between the two prostitutes. Remember that? In chapter 3, at the beginning of his reign, we're given this account where Solomon adjudicates a case between two prostitutes who are both claiming to be the mother of the same child because one of the women rolled over on her child and suffocated him in her sleep and the child died. And so she, as well as the genuine mother, were both claiming to be the mother of this child. And apparently people were baffled as to how Solomon was going to solve this problem and figure out who the true mother of this child was. No DNA analysis back in those days. And so they were wondering what was going to happen. And as you know, Solomon adjudicated cleverly and effectively and 
that child was returned to its true mother. And you'll note that that's the only example of Solomon adjudicating a case in the entire account in Kings and Chronicles of Solomon's reign. So it's very likely that God intended that to be prototypical, to be exemplary of or representative of the kind of justice that Solomon provided for God's people. Because it's the only example, and it might seem a very unusual example as a a single example, but that's the one example of adjudicating a case that we're given in the scriptures. And so we should probably consider it as typical, as illustrative of the kind of justice that Solomon provided. And we see that the response to that particular case is found in verse 28, 1 Kings chapter 3. And all Israel heard of the judgment which the king had rendered. And they feared the king, for they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to administer justice. And then later in his reign, when the queen of Sheba came to check him out, because she had heard all the reports about his amazing kingdom, a just kingdom, a wealthy kingdom, a kingdom where the citizens loved their king. And her conclusion, chapter 10 of 1 Kings, Happy are your men and happy are those are these your servants who stand continually before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who delighted in you, setting you on the throne of Israel, because the Lord has loved Israel forever. Therefore he made you king to do justice and righteousness. So Solomon's kingdom was recognized for its justice. But was it recognized for its peace? Was Solomon's kingdom a kingdom of peace? Well, again, there we see that it was. We note that there was some anticipation of this also in Solomon's name. Solomon's name in Hebrew is Shlomo, so it comes from the word Shalom for peace. And so there's this expectation in the name that David gave him that he would be, that he would be a king of peace. Again, pointing forward to the Prince of Peace, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would sit on the throne of David for eternity. And we also read David, who said, at one point in his reign, he said, Solomon, my son, as for me, it was in my mind to build a house to the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me, saying, You have shed much blood and have made great wars. You shall not build a house for my name, because you have shed much blood on the earth in my sight. Behold, a son shall be born to you, who shall be a man of rest. I will give him rest from all his enemies all around. His name shall be Solomon, for I will give peace and quietness to Israel in his days. 1 Chronicles 22. And then we also read from 1 Kings 4. He had dominion over all the region on this side of the river, from Tifsa even to Gaza, namely over all the kings on this side of the river. And he had peace on every side all around him. And Judah and Israel dwelt safely, each man under his vine and his fig tree, from Dan as far as Beersheba, all the days of Solomon. And then we could also refer back to this account of the adjudication of the case with the prostitutes. God doesn't promise peace to everyone. He promises peace to his people. And we can see that typified in the innocent mother, the genuine mother of the child. Imagine, imagine, you ladies can probably imagine this, no doubt, much more vividly than I can, but picture this genuine mother having the risk of her child being torn from her hands and given to another mother who, uh, who is lying about being that child's mother. Think of the weight 
the burden, the fear, the anxiety, the, the tension that she's feeling, wondering as they go before this king what he's going to say, how he's going to adjudicate, how he's going to figure this out. And think about how all of a sudden she feels when the king, king says, well, let's cut the baby in half. And think about how that accentuates her anxiety and her fear even more. But then think about how after the false mother says, okay, let's do, it, let's do that. And, then, and the king immediately says, you're not the mother, but this is the true mother. Give the child to this mother. Imagine how this mother, all of a sudden, that burden disappears and she's, it's replaced by this overwhelming sense of peace that she's going to get her child back and she is going to be given justice as she is able to parent her own child. Think of that amazing washing over her of peace in the face of potential injustice and the fact that that adjudication, that case should be considered as, t- as illustrative of the kind of justice that Solomon exercised in his kingdom. Indeed, Solomon's kingdom was a kingdom of true and real peace that effectively typifies the kind of kingdom of peace we can expect under the perfect king, the Lord Jesus Christ. Then, was Solomon's kingdom a kingdom of deliverance from oppression? We see some very descriptive words for the oppressed that Solomon's using to identify those who are oppressed, who need help from a kingdom of deliverance from oppression. The poor, the children of the needy, the needy who are crying for help, the poor in him who has no helper, the poor and needy, the victims of oppression and violence. And those Hebrew words have a range of meaning. And so in other versions of the scriptures, you read some of them translated as afflicted and humble, beggar, weak, Starving, people who are materially impoverished, social outcasts, sick and disabled. And Solomon sees them all, recognizes them all as vulnerable victims of oppression, needing deliverance, needing the adjudication of justice. And, and we can see how the, how the case with those two prostitutes also illustrates illustrates how Solomon's kingdom was a kingdom of deliverance from oppression when we think of how uh, that burden of oppression was lifted from the true mother's heart when she was given back her child and realized that the king understood what was going on. And maybe even more than that, we can consider just the fact that the prostitutes would be the outcasts in society. And and to be sure, because of their own decisions, but outcasts in society, they probably often wouldn't expect to get adjudication for their cases. Who cares about about prostitutes getting justice? I mean, they've caused so much trouble for themselves, um, and they're causing so much trouble for other people. Do we really care about whether one prostitute is getting justice at the hands of another prostitute or not? I mean, how many people really care about justice for those who are outcasts in society, let alone let alone getting their case brought actually before the king himself. I mean, who would ever anticipate something like that? And yet, that case was, did come before the king. And so you see, even in that, there was deliverance from oppression, even oppression caused by people's own sin and own, own choosing. But in that, do we not see one of the most beautiful pictures of the Lord Jesus Christ and in God's salvation of us, because are we not like the prostitutes who willfully 
walk in our sin, when we're walking in rebellion from God before he's translated us into the kingdom of his son, when we're estranged from God, we're walking willfully against God. And yet the Lord Jesus Christ, while we were still enemies, he came and died on the cross in order to make a way of salvation. He, the king, made the way of salvation through his suffering and his sacrificial death. That's interesting and important because it's in the scriptures here that this particular word for, for oppression has an economic character, characteristic to it. There's different words for oppression in Hebrew and they're translated oppression in our Bibles. But this word for oppression is very characteristically financial and economic in its, in its nature. You see the word is translated in other places such as Psalm 62 verse 10 using, again, uh, Hebrew poetic parallelism. It likens oppression to robbery. Do not trust in oppression, nor vainly hope in robbery. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 7, again, using the parallelism, likens oppression to bribery. Surely oppression destroys a wise man's reason, and a bribe debases the heart. So the oppression and bribe are linked together. In Leviticus 19, verse 13, we read, You shall not cheat your neighbor nor rob him. The wages of him who is hired shall not remain with you all night until morning. The word for cheat is our word here for oppress. Now I know that in our day, when you talk about economic oppression, we think of that as a, a social justice category because the social justice warriors in our world like to talk about economic oppression. But we need to recognize that economic issues, financial issues, are a huge oppression. We're seeing it in our day. We see that people commit suicide when they feel that they're hopeless financially, economically. We see that when people have to decide between whether to put fuel in their gas tank or feed their children because of their income level and what's going on in societies with things like inflation and significantly and rapidly rising prices of basic necessities, we see much in the way of economic oppression and troubles in our world. Well, that doesn't mean that we solve them again the way the social justice warriors say with, with big government. What, what do we see as a characteristic of Solomon's kingdom? How does Solomon address economic oppression? We don't see it explicitly identified, but consider what it says here about Solomon's kingdom in 1 Kings chapter 4. Now Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour 60 cores of meal, 10 fatted oxen, 20 oxen from the pastures, and 100 sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fatted fowl. Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. And these governors, each man in his month, provided food for King Solomon and for all who came to King Solomon's table. There was no lack in their supply. They also brought barley and straw to the proper place for the horses and steeds each man according to his charge. I'm thinking when I read something like that, that there was probably almost 100% employment in Solomon's kingdom. We don't see that Solomon provided a cradle-to-grave social welfare program, but rather there seemed to be plenty of work for everybody to go around. And of course, there was a huge temple building project that he, under, that he undertook, building God's temple. And the scriptures say in 1 Kings 9 that it took 13 years to build his own house. Solomon's labor force was massive. And through his reign and his rule and the blessings of God upon it, he delivered people from 
oppression, even economic oppression, not through government schemes, but through 100% employment, through providing, through the means provided by God's law. So we see that the plea that Solomon made to God for him to be a king who ruled with justice and righteousness and therefore that God would give him a kingdom that exemplified justice, peace and deliverance from oppression was realized. And it's important that it was realized because it is a type of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Ultimately who is in view here is the Lord Jesus Christ as king and his rule and his reign. So if God had not blessed Solomon's kingdom, how would we think about God's blessing through the Lord Jesus Christ and his kingdom? But we see that indeed God did bless through Solomon's kingdom. But of course Solomon's kingdom was an imperfect kingdom as blessed as it was. Solomon was an imperfect king as blessed as he was. But we want to look now at the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the kingdom of a perfect king, the kingdom of the Messiah who God sent to be Savior and Lord, to redeem this world and to rule and to reign over it. And we see in that that Christ's justice, Christ's commitment to justice was even greater than Solomon's because Christ was perfect. Christ as a God-man had all the wisdom to judge perfectly and he knows men's hearts and so he can judge the secrets of men's hearts perfectly and truly when where no man can and he promises to do perfect justice. But even in his justice God wanted to save a people for himself, didn't he? He wanted to extend grace and mercy to a people. And so how to do that and still be perfectly just? Solomon couldn't do that. Solomon couldn't make his people reconciled with God so that they might receive eternal life. They could only be blessed in this life through Solomon's rule and Solomon's reign, but the Lord Jesus Christ, in paying the penalty for the sin of his people, in bearing the requirement of God's justice by taking upon himself God's wrath for the sin of his people, God was able to be perfectly just while also perfectly gracious and merciful and loving to those for whom Christ died. And Christ is coming again in perfect justice to adjudicate fully and finally when he comes back and and ushers us all into eternal life. We can look at our world and we can be frustrated and we can say, well, the kingdom of God, with Christ's reign, should be giving us a much better life here in this world because otherwise, how can we say that it is so much better than Solomon's? How can we say that it's represented by that wonderful imagery in Psalm 72? We have to remember that God's reign of justice is also related to the obedience and faithfulness of men, and particularly is his church. And when we don't see the justice we want to see, perhaps what we need to see is a revival and reformation of repentance 
in the church of Jesus Christ in this land. If we want to see God's rule and God's reign manifest in ways that are more consistently evidence of, of justice, we need to see repentance because God's perfect justice will include pain and difficulty and hardship and suffering for his people as he disciples us and trains us in this fallen world and as he calls us to repent of our sin and turn to him. That's not him, that's not him being defeated by the enemy. That's not him failing at providing perfect justice, but that's him providing perfect justice in the big picture of his good and gracious plans for his people and his commitment to glorify himself with the anticipation of a perfect kingdom for eternity. And then what about Christ's kingdom of peace? What about Christ's kingdom of peace? How is Christ's kingdom of peace better than Solomon's kingdom of peace? Well, again, Solomon could only provide people with a kingdom of material peace. He couldn't provide peace with God. He couldn't provide the peace between peace for men of a clear conscience between them and God. Only the Lord Jesus Christ in saving a people for himself and saving you and saving me could give us peace with God by reconciling us to, to God. Only the Lord Jesus Christ can give us a peace of a clear conscience when we repent of our sin and turn to him and turn away from our wickedness. And only Christ can promise us peace for eternity when he comes again to usher us in to his full and final kingdom at the end of history. But God has also promised real peace in this life. As relative and imperfect as it may be, there is still a promise of real peace in this life. Again, in response to obedience and faithfulness of his people. A clear conscience, for example, before God gives peace and enables you to thrive. It enables you to thrive in your relationship with him. Walking in sin, on the other hand, produces sleepless nights, the torment of guilt and shame, the effort and cost of hiding your sin and covering your tracks, despair, hopelessness, and worse. But a clear conscience before God is a beautiful thing, making experiential our status of being at peace with God. And if you, if you exhibit the fruit of the Spirit in your home, gentleness, kindness, patience, love, you should expect more harmony, especially if both of you or all of you in your home are practicing these behaviors and these characteristics. If you're slow to judge, if you believe the best of others because love believes all things, 1 Corinthians 13, if you're slow to speak and quick to listen, if you don't interrupt because love is not rude, if you forgive as God in Christ forgave you, then in your domestic relations you can expect much more peace than if you're acting differently. As a subject of God's kingdom, you have been promised peace. Pursue it. Pursue peace with all men and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. And then we ask, how is Christ's kingdom of freedom from oppression greater than Solomon's? Well, again, as Solomon's focus was here, his focus was on freedom, deliverance from oppression of, in financial and economic areas, Largely, But, of course, those things point to the more serious and more 
important areas of oppression, the spiritual oppression, the oppression of sin, the weight of our sin that torments us under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, the, the oppression of, of death as a judgment of sin for those who are not trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Christ is the only one who can deliver us from the oppression of sin and from the oppression of death. And that's what brings us to that central section of the psalm and why it's important to recognize that chiastic structure which focuses our thinking into that central section of the psalm. Because though that psalm uses vivid language related to people's natural oppressions and natural difficulties. He will deliver the needy when he cries, the poor and him who has no helper. He will spare the poor and needy and redeem their life from oppression and violence. The language that's used there seems to much more specifically hone in on man's need, not just for physical, for deliverance from physical and material oppression, but deliverance from their spiritual oppression. Deliverance from an oppression that only God in Christ can provide. We look at verse 12 first. He will deliver the needy when he cries, the poor also, and him who has no helper. The idea of the, deliver, the, the needy when he cries, a picture of a person who's in deep despair, who's hopeless, people who are wholly unable to save themselves. And that, that's what it says. They have no helper. And that pictures us dead in our sin. We're not just sick in our sin. We're not just bowed down in our sin. We're dead in our sin. We can't even help ourselves. We have no helper before God to save us from our sin, to reconcile us with God. Only Christ can reconcile us with God. Only God can make our hearts alive to believe in him. And so we have that pictured in the language of him who has no helper. And then in verse 13, we read, He will spare the poor and needy and will save the souls of the needy. Spare, he will spare the poor and needy. That word for spare is the idea of cover. The idea of cover. Where do we read or know about, the, see the language of, of covering in relation to redemption? Well, in the New Covenant, we, we read it about the righteousness of Christ that covers our sin. Romans chapter 4, verses 6 to 7. We're covered in the righteousness of Christ. And that's because of his blood shed on the cross. We sometimes talk about ourselves as being covered by the blood of Christ. Well, of course, Solomon didn't have Christ's death and resurrection before him. What, what in the Old Testament pictures the covering of a Messiah, of a Redeemer for uh, us in our sin? Well, it's the mercy seat that sits on the top of the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant was the place in the tabernacle in the temple where God symbolically presented himself to meet with his people, not in judgment, but in grace and mercy. And so this mercy seat looked forward in the Old Testament worship to the coming of a Messiah who would redeem his people from their sins. And so we see that again in this, in this language used in verse 13 of our passage. And then we read in verse 14, the king will redeem the oppressed. And redeem 
is from the same word family as Goel, the kinsman redeemer. And the most famous kinsman redeemer in scripture, of course, is Boaz, who as a type of Christ, exercised this responsibility towards Ruth in marrying her. And so in verses 12 to 14, the central component of the psalm, the portion of the psalm that the psalmist Solomon wanted us to focus in on, uh, and everything else that he said in the psalm, most explicitly points not just to him and his kingdom, but to the kingdom of a coming Messiah, the one who God promised to David would sit on the throne of David for eternity and would be the true and ultimate king of God's kingdom. And so we see in this in this wonderful kingdom psalm, this wonderful messianic psalm, a picture of Christ's glorious kingdom typified by what work God did in the kingdom of Solomon. But what does this kingdom of Christ then mean? As we conclude, I just want to make a comment. What this kingdom of Christ might mean for you and for Canada? You see, God has not made the same promises to Canada as he did to Israel, did he? But there is general equity in the law provided and the obedience required and in the blessings offered and the judgments threatened. And some early influential Canadians, as I mentioned at the outset, sought the explicit blessing of a kingdom of God over Canada using Psalm 72 in this glorious picture of Christ's kingdom. Verse 8 became Canada's, a portion of verse 8 became Canada's motto. And verses 1 and 8, again, were engraved on Canada's peace tower. This is a legacy we should embrace as 21st century Canadians. We should also heed the warnings for abandoning this vision in sin and rebellion. But as long as Christ tarries before his return in judgment, it can mean for Canada all that Solomon's kingdom of peace and justice and deliverance meant for God's people in that day, along with all the glorious and greater promises of justice, peace, and deliverance from oppression that come with salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. If we pursue this with lives of repentance and obedience to God, if there is a reformation of righteousness and true worship in our land.